You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. And hi, everybody. It is June. What is it today? The 13th, 2016, and we are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Yay. Burns, and we are broadcasting on Future Theater Live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury Village, Pennsylvania, with our guest tonight, uh, Richard A. Lertzman, my co-writer for Mickey Rooney and Dr. Feelgood, and Joel Martin, my co-writer for Edison's Spirit Phone, Haunting of the President, Haunting of America. They're going to join us in a half hour, and another guest uh, on tape will be Nancy Reagan, former first lady Nancy Reagan, talking about the weirdnesses of the Ronald Reagan administration. Our producers tonight, the Jackal, Angel Espino. Hello. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. And Chris Brown. Say hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. And Chris has a new house, so we're all happy. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, good Mm -hmm. news comes to those who... Expected. We we all to, we all knew Chris was going to land. I don't think in that's the actual place. thing, but that's a pretty good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's the know, law of attraction. So close too, to to where where I'm at. It's really nice. I'm actually, my my backyard. I got a huge backyard, nice and fenced. But but when beyond that is well, the can of king right there. So <laughs> yeah. you can make mm-hmm. midnight deliveries. I can. It was my 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 soon to be landlord even had to say something to the the eighty really? three year old landlord. Yeah. It well, does funny. the 83-year-old landlord uh, go? No, he doesn't look like that guy. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, boy, you Shucks. introduced an 83-year-old to pot, and I think you'd make a very happy friend because he could yeah. get off of, I mean, seriously. Either, either that or you could develop some blood clots and the house is yours. No, no, no. It's, it, it is, <laughs> back in the day when I researched the plant, I, I can guarantee you it is a friend to to humankind. It gets into your system and does what? It needs to do for you. And I do think there are lots of people who, I'm not advocating everybody go out and do it, but there are a lot of people who don't do it and, and never will. And there's more for us when the time mm-hmm. comes. That's right. Because stoners don't care if you do it. And if of they course, literally don't. Nope. They no, don't. they don't. don't. And of course, Ohio, Ohio became the 25th yeah. state. Tipping point. The tipping point. Tipping the 25th point. state. Half the country now has medical marijuana laws. Oh, in place. I didn't know. It was just the other month. Ohio was just this month. So it has been. Um, it is a. It is. A, it is a gradual march. And mm. soon, Florida. Please, please, please. Yeah. yeah I got well, glaucoma and arthritis. It's a tricky thing. You know, that's kind of the same thing over here with, with Arizona. You have a lot of older people, a lot of retirees, a lot of people stuck in the old ways that love to re- go down to those warm places and retire, probably like Florida, just like Arizona here. And they'll stick to those old laws and stuff. So, you know, until you get that old crowd dying off, then the new, you know, the – yeah, but the, the old uh, crowd you talk all about you've got to do is the very all, crowd that will embrace that's right. it the most. All you've got to do mm-hmm. if somebody is in chemotherapy, if, if somebody legal, is see, doing stuff, problem. what you do is this. I mean, uh, 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 one of my co-writers, 
who uh, worked on the books Space Wars Encounter Space with me, was diagnosed. He, he had to undergo cancer treatments, and uh, he went to Oregon and because he could get um, – because that's where his treatments were. And, and here's a guy who, who was so conservative, he makes Genghis Khan look like Mother Teresa. But the point is that even there, cannabis was easing his situation. So I think that um, even in a place like Arizona, uh, people who um, need it with glaucoma and certain arthritis and things like that would really glom onto this. Well, I think it has something to do with how much you trust your own mind to handle something new. For example, um, uh, marijuana is terrifying to people because it's illegal. And there are many, many, many people in this country, thank God, who won't steal and who won't do illegal things. Mm-hmm. Who like a lot of people socialize it with steel, that, that stereotype of, well, it leads to bigger things. They're growing it to go to get dr- a big, to get heavy drugs or guns or cocaine. No, no, it does lead to other things. It does lead to other things. It doesn't. Yeah, it does. It does. Hold on, hold on. Hold on, let me finish. It does. Junk food, movies, sex, pizza, love. Uh, let's see. It, it it helps you with you know certain things. Like if you're a musician, it helps you become more creative. So it actually helps your creativity. So I mean, look, yeah, it does lead to other things. It leads it to wonderful things. Wonderful things, exactly. So it does lead to Crystal. Never say that lie again. And it doesn't lead to other things because it does. It leads to beautiful, wonderful things. The things they put out there, the propaganda for the last hundred years of marijuana, has been BS. The well, truth is, it is negative things. Look, is if you believe in God, that is God's plant, baby. That's the what it is. The thing about the Anslinger racks that made marijuana illegal uh, on a federal level, that was racist. That's why it's called marijuana, because it was supposed to be only Hispanics use this drug. So that's well, why it's you know, called the, marijuana. Yeah, marijuana. Yep. Guess, that's so it. guess what? That I was have, totally I have racist. Of, I have a bit of absolute humongous news, really. Oh, what's your Speaking news? Speaking of that, because uh, you Bill was asleep, and I was watching Chris Hayes' show right before – it comes on at 8 o'clock on MSNBC. And Bill's asleep. MSNBC. And here's, we're, here's what happened that I have seen – okay, unless you saw the show, and I don't know whether they picked up on it yet or not. But this is a this is a bombshell. Okay, for number one, there. Well, this all comes from Chris Hayes hanging out with the locals, right? He's 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 talking to people, getting the behinds. Where the story. is he hanging out? In Orlando. In Orlando. Oh, okay. I was about to say, what are we talking I'm, about? Oh, here? I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's so much on my mind. It is just humongously on my mind. But anyway, so so he's hanging out in Orlando, getting the uh, scoop from the people in the street, and and right, there's right, some right. humongous big stuff going on. And it's this number one, the guy was a Kind of a pretty well-known face in the homosexual crowd. He was on Grinder and a thing called Adam. Oh, the shooter. Yes, uh, and, you, and it makes sense. Uh, and yeah, now here's here's what's more. Here's what's really amazing. You know how there's this heartbreaking story of the mom who's getting the text from her son. I can't even bear to even in the bath. The kids yeah, in the, the bath. He's the coming. Yeah, killed, right? right. In the bathroom. Yeah. You with me, guys? Angel. There was yeah, a mother. Yeah, listen. Go ahead. Continue. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. There was another person in there who lived and told his friend, who was the one telling Chris this story. And the and the and the friend he told is one of the spokespeople for the whole gay people. So he's not just 
anybody. He's either owns the building or some such thing. He's he's gettable. We can go back on the tape and get him. Okay. But anyway, he said there was another person in the in that bathroom who lived through it and heard he was in that bathroom. The the shooter went in and barricaded himself in because that's when he called nine one one, right? And said, I love the ISIS, right? And you, right, you, right, right. okay, so after that, he hung, he he kept the phone and he made another call. Okay, to a friend of his who said there were two other people involved outside. I've heard uh, this from several reports. Yeah, yeah. I people. heard this too. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. two other people. Uh, this is coming directly uh, from a from a second ear witness. And when he was shooting people, he was letting all the blacks out and only shooting Hispanics. So it's got to be a spur. Wow. Level. Yeah, he's and he this, says I have this a problem gets, with the facts. This he's, thing he's, gets more bizarre by the by the minute. Uh, if you think about if you think about this crazy angel, no, but yeah, no, I understand that. But th- let's a, think about how, let's think about how crazy this person is. He's in Orlando. He's a Muslim. He's a Democrat, and he shoots a gay club. Democrats are like the most loving people to gay people to begin with. They're like they embrace the gay community in Orlando, which is a, a heavily populated gay area. But he and, wasn't uh, living in Orlando, Angel. He was no, I know, but he went to Orlando to commit the crime. Right, is what I'm saying. Right. So it, it just gets more and more bizarre because when you start linking all these different, you know, avenues, yeah, the guy just sounds like he's bananas. But it, it makes perfect sense that he is probably a closeted homosexual. He hates himself, and he just went on. Uh, he just couldn't take it, and he and did this. Why he called? ISIS, there was no. He had to give himself. See, he's insane. He's paranoid. Oh, completely. Yeah, definitely. Completely. And and he's a closet gay, and he hates himself. He hates himself for this. So instead of embracing what he is, that's why he had these two failed marriages. Correct. Yeah, yeah, but now why? But two other um, things, accomplices. That does become a plot. Immediately, maybe one of his boyfriends and uh, another doesn't matter. They they were shooting. They were they were sort of. The point is, there could be two other. There could be two other terrorists out there. Maybe these are the guys that were getting in his head, saying, "You know what? Since you're this way, you should do this and kill all these people, and you know this would make it right with Allah." And and gave him all this propaganda and this brainwashing that led him to do this. Yes, they who, who, if in fact there were others there. Then it was, uh, then it could have been they were the ones. I mean, it's like the son of Sam. Remember the son of Sam case where this guy said a dog was talking to him and told him to kill all these people? This is a lot like that because this guy is actually hearing command. I will bet you this guy was actually hearing command voices. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. When you look at the spectrum of like the entire case so far in the last 24 hours, I mean, it, it almost leads to believe that he was not only conditioned, coached, he was put up to this because of who he is they probably found him on grinder or one of these uh, gay uh yeah, hookup yeah. sites well, and they told him hey if you don't if you don't do what we say we're gonna out you to your family and he was probably so deeply closeted that that's what got them to well, you know yeah, get the brainwashing the thing about calling isis just kind of falls out of the sky so conveniently just like the right. uh, mohammed Adda's passport it's like, oh, look at this. It's ISIS. <laughs> In great condition, too. Look. Yeah, it just fell oh, right, right on top of all the burning, smoldering. How wreckage. did that oh, happen? Passport. <laughs> Is it that sub? It just fell out of the sky. What are the odds? Country guys. <laughs> yep. No, the, but Nancy, the crazy it's, thing is here that this is an American citizen in our own country, and that's, we, it. that's the craziest part about this. Because look, you know, I understand we have to have this war on terror, he right? One angel. He was born five miles away from where Donald Trump was born. That's crazy. That is crazy. I mean, same, same, same borough of New York City, different neighborhoods, but the same borough. 
and I know yeah, exactly where they both were. Well, different we, family backgrounds. You know, this uh, guy's family came from Afghanistan. You know, the brainwashing that's been going on there for the last 30 years is what it is. And I'm sure he, he brought some of that inherited into him because, you look, you're not born to hate even yourself or who you are. That's, that's conditioning from birth, man. That's when your parents got at you when they were, when you were little and they made gay comments about other homosexuals or black, or blacks or, or Hispanics. Not just your parents. You you listen to Donald Trump on down. No, Donald Trump on down. He well, I don't want to blame this on Donald Trump because you know what? Donald Trump has been saying that the illegal Muslims, the illegal immigrants are no, the ones that bring teaching terror. people to No, go. you should have heard him today. No, he's saying the, the, guy's Af- the guy's an Afghan. He's not an Afghan. He's an American. Yeah, but he, no, but his family is from Afghanistan. Doesn't matter. Doesn't That's matter. like saying Judge Curiel's family. Is, just okay, but Judge it, Curiel. What, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember what the. I don't remember what the term is, but I think it's called um, something uh, hook baby or something like that. I don't remember the name. Oh, exactly. anchor baby. He's anchor baby. There you go. They, they they come here just to have a baby so they could stay here and then they could go back home. I mean, that's what it kind of sounds like. We don't. You never know. I mean, we don't know the whole story of this guy's family. This could very well be that. But, the great but, beauty of living here is the that churn, the cultural churn is like a big like blender that just kind of you want to get ahead, you want to get ahead, you want to become part of the culture. These people seem to be immune to the lure of the culture. They they come to almost hate yeah. it. And you yet know, they you, become you know, Nancy, they become kings of culture, like for their, their time in the in the sunlight right now. Not only this that, this guy, guy also wanted to be a police the officer. Other, the, other, the, other, um, the other ones who did this. This guy was a wannabe. Well, why, he's if he's wannabe. making phone calls to other people on the outside, didn't didn't the FBI? Because they were just all over the place this morning. Well, I know. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just hope that what Chris Hayes put on the the show tonight, and I'm telling all you guys, we're all going to go on the internet and look for this information. True. Very true. Uh, you know, I mean, we're not a huge radio, but, but, but that's why he's a but. decent reporter, even though he can't. Read a teleprompter. Yeah, but he was lousy in that. He didn't, no, no, no. He didn't follow up or anything. He really can't. He didn't follow he just, up? No, he just patted him on the shoulder and said, I'm so sad to be talking to you at this time. And he kept putting his hands on him. It was just weird. And he didn't follow up. So I think it was a bombshell that unless the whole entire network just begins to parse over it and repeat it, repeat it, uh, it was a, maybe a shocker. Maybe. Well, A, if he actually made those phone calls, then it's feasible the fbi has his yes. cell phone yes right okay yes and they will one can only hope and they will unlock yeah. the cell phone okay. and i'm telling you but he was on the watch list like three times i mean what's the point of the watch list if you can drop on and off because can't, can't, unless unless you have evidence that there's no, a potential hurt, hurt yeah, Na- Nancy, you can't no, arrest a, a citizen because and, they might commit a crime. First we, 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 have, first we haven't gotten to a minority report here yet in this country. <laughs> to the buy a gun list. The First Amendment. No, no, no. The watch list is there for, certain, for the FBI's purpose. Not, not to say if you're on the list, you can't do stuff. But if you're on the list, you will be watched. That's all it is. Right. But the thing is that what he that the reason he turned up on the list is he was a friend of a friend, and they said, "Okay, let's so investigate this." The list this. can hold many people. They you can a computer can keep its eye on everybody. That yes, but the FBI ISIS. is circumscribed by yeah, 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 the yeah. fourth. Fifth and Fifth yeah, Amendments. And here's the here's the thing, guys. What they need to do if you're on the watch list, you need to chip these people, implants. That's it. Yeah. 
There you go. Straight up. You know what? I've always been scared of the implants. You know, this is a new world order thing. But you know what? If our uh, clubs are getting okay. shot up, if yeah. our civilians are in danger, you know what? If you're on that watch list, go ahead, chip them. I'm all for it. Let's chip all the criminals. Chip them. And if you're all all, keep track of these guys. Let's take that. Okay, then, let's take that to the next stage. And citizens can stay free by not being chipped. Let's. Let's but if you don't that. commit crimes, you don't get chipped. You know, exactly. I got nothing to hide. So, but I got nothing to hide. I ain't going to get chipped. Crime, you get chipped, and that's the end of your Fourth Amendment protections. Well, you haven't you done anything, prison, but somebody suspects some you of something. But you Listen, still have no fair trial. Same thing with if you go to prison. Let's say you go to prison for anything. When you come out, you're not a full-fledged citizen. Yes, you, you are. You can't vote in some states. No, not, no, no, no. Bill, my brother was in prison. My, my brother did years in prison. He got out in 89, 90, around there. Till this day, he still has the repercussions of the seven years he did in prison. Really? He wasn't able to get his citizenship, his residency. He is basically an illegal alien who's been here for almost 40 years. Like That's a reality. He's a marked man. It's him. He's a marked man because he made a mistake as a kid. He listened to the wrong people. He ended up going to jail. And he didn't snitch on the people who did the crime. And he took the rap. And because of being an idiot, now you'd be like, man, just snitch, you get out of jail. But you know what? He was afraid for his life, afraid for his family's life, and he didn't snitch, kept his mouth closed, and he did seven years in prison. Now, to this day, he's a very responsible person. He's a outstanding, you know, contributor to society. Unfortunately, I can't say citizen or even resident because of a mistake he made when he was seventeen years old. So yeah, when you get out of prison, you might be able to you might be able to get a a job somewhere when they pay you under the table or you might be able to get a work permit, but it's not that easy. You're not really integrated into society as easily as one would love. And if it's in the state of Florida you can't vote. No, he can never vote. Exactly. He can never vote. Never. He has no say in anything okay, now, political. Okay, now, PJ, on the, on the chat, let's talk about this. He said he saw the same interview. He thinks I misheard, which is perfectly possible, but I, I'll go back and listen. It's plausible? Yeah. Well, we'll hear <laughs> it he later. Said, he said the killer was talking to hostage negotiators and telling them there were more people. Because this guy said very confidently he called his best friend. Or maybe he said he told – I don't know. I'll get, but You know what? I should mm. take a moment. <laughs> now, okay, so the Chris Hayes show – Rewind. Will be repeated tonight. <laughs> Shush. I'd like to now know exactly what was I'm going to mute myself and laugh. Hold on. Mm, shush. Mm-hmm. See, if I can go downstairs right now and hit the record button. Oh, for God's now, sakes. Because it's gone. It's not being recorded. It was just something I saw, and I might have misheard it. Um, PJ Zimmerlink, you might have misheard it, too. You need so. to set up a <laughs> nightly recording system for that show. We yeah, can, but it's, Rachel, it's Chris but Hayes, Chris for God's sakes. I don't like him that much. Oh. Uh, kind of gets on our nerves mostly that's when we go and watch a movie and uh because we can't take it anymore i mean we're liberal but there's too much liberal you can shut up with the laughing i can hear you even <laughs> i'm gonna mute and cough i love you guys <laughs> so tomorrow is so tomorrow was the washington dc presidential primary ah oh yeah well, did, has Hillary or Bernie in particular ever said anything about renovating uh, felons and stuff like that? Like, in other words, you, you do your time and you've got well, a Hillary has. clean slate. She has called for – yeah, she's she has. I she's doing a mea culpa because of that. Bernie still, hasn't, Bernie still hasn't dropped out of the race technically, right? He's still no, like, but he's going to have a lot of power, so I do no. believe he's going to have power. And that's like, This exactly dude doesn't want to go away. It's amazing. I'm a Bernie Sanders <laughs> fan. I love Bernie Sanders. <laughs> That, that's pretty good there, Chris. Pretty good. I think How's we should throw? elect Larry David for the yeah, Democratic right candidate. Yeah. I think we need Deion Sanders as president. Forget Deion Bernie Sanders. What? Let's get Deion Sanders. Let's get prime time in the White House. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No? Nobody? Yeah. No. Prime time? No? No. Falcons? 
I, agree. I, I know Raiders. who he is. Oh, so. I know who you mean. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought I was all alone here. Jesus. He has something to do with sports, right? With not nothing to do with Zambonis, right? No, no nothing. Well, no, he it's football. Eaten, he might have eaten a couple of calzones, but not a Zamboni. Oh. Yeah, it's football. Deion Sanders, they ran the Prime uh, time, years baby. he ran the fastest 40 ever in NFL exactly. Combine. This is a guy yeah, I'm telling that you, has, he can full, run the country. Full equipment, too. Yeah, right? this yeah. is a guy that I could high-step himself just and still outrun everyone backwards. So, yeah. His nickname was Prime Time. That's what we need in the White House. We need Prime Time. Why are you talking? What's happening with him? No, nothing. Because he has the same last name as Bernie Sanders. Oh, Dion Sanders. I get it. It was a quick joke there, Nancy. It's quick. See, when you say Dion, I think of Dion Warwick or Dion DiMucci. Two different generations. That's the thing. Dion DiMucci. Dion DiMucci. Dion DiMucci. Dion. Dion the singer. Dion the Belmonts. I wish I were a teenager in love. Really good wow. stuff. Dion's I just wish I were a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah. Those yeah. days. So star, okay, glorious. So star, uh, Andromeda Starchild, who's always here, and hello. And also, uh, Belgab is a really bad place right now. It's it's getting a little Uh-oh. better. It, really? It's been really terrible because of this shooting. I mean, it, there are some professional creeps on that on that forum that usually they get beaten down but when people are depressed they just it was terrible anyway so tonight's show andromeda and so bell gab has to is cheering itself up i hope uh what's the show about tonight here's what the show is about tell us nancy burns it's really weird uh bill has a, a couple writing partners and they're both on tonight andromeda? Delightful, delightful, <laughs> what did you say andromeda at least she did andromeda is the name of the person in chat Oh, Andromeda Star. Yeah. Andromeda. Okay. No, it's actually Andromedon. We just call Starchild. her Star. Yeah, Andromeda Andro- Star. And- Andromedon Star. So what did she say? Andromedon Star. Starchild. So she wanted wanted to know what the show was about. Oh, the show tonight. Big oh, shout outs to Andromedon Starchild. There we go. To the, our lovely chat, we we get a we get a go healthy ahead, little chat going on here. Don't ask me why. Go to psn radiocom <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm so proud and of you. And then there you so go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And why don't you give the phone number for folks oh, if they want to call? Come on, Nancy. Come on, Nancy. You can got do it. it. You I got it. it. I got it. I've only got to hit one button. Right? Oh, you got to hit a button? Two years later, really? A button? 786-245-8127. We welcome your calls. Ooh, we do. That. And t- Okay, so tonight, Nancy Reagan. Uh, it turns out that one of Bill's writing partners, he has two, and he has, he has more than two. He has a many, but tonight two of them are on tonight. Yeah, Rick tell us Lertzman, about them, Bill. Rick Lertzman and uh, Joel Martin. But but the thing is, it turns out that Rick has this old tape from when he interviewed Nancy Reagan about the astrologer in the White no, House. No, about Bob Sorry. Cummings. And about Bob Cummings. But anyway, she gets really crazy mad at him at the end, and I really want to hear that. So she snaps out of nice and, I guess, yells at him or something. We'll see. No. You see, the Reagans... Ronald Reagan was great friends with Robert Cummings because they were in the movie together, King's Road, where they both climbed into bed together. Oh, you know, it's a whole thing. And in the history of gay Hollywood, that's one of the big scenes. And what scene is this? King's Road is the movie. Ronald Reagan did a gay scene, really? With who was the guy with Ronald Reagan in the in the scene? Bob Cummings. Oh my goodness! And they were great yeah, yeah. friends. This is like Spartacus has that great gay scene, right? This you is know, like in other words, before Spartacus gay- was gay. 
Okay, here's the thing, Angel. There's a whole lot of documentaries about the hidden history of Hollywood. And when men were in the closet, there would sometimes be scenes that would be so gay that they would they would almost make you squirm, but they'd be right on the edge. And the Spartacus bath scene with Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas, where Kirk Douglas, they're taking a bath no, together. No, no, it was... Spartacus was... I always thought that was the manliest scene ever. Like, no, man, my was, life has been ruined. Lawrence, no, it was Lawrence Olivier in that no, no, scene. No, 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 no. Is it Lawrence Olivier yeah. or Tony Curtis? I mean, what's yeah. so gay about a couple of guys without their shirts in the bathhouse? I mean, what's so gay about exactly. that? Exactly, and they're just they're just rubbing what? oil. Just doing just oil, rubbing each other. Ooh. So anyway, John Travolta but, swears to you that's not gay. That's well, not gay. But but stuff got into movies, and what Bill is describing was a scene between Ronald Reagan and uh, Rich King's uh, Road King's was Road. a movie. What it was, was like scene? it's a movie from the forties. It was set it, 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 it was set in the nineteenth mm-hmm. century, mm-hmm. and the Ronald Reagan character has an accident. He can't walk. He wants to die. He's stuck in bed. He's got his girlfriend, the beautiful Anne Sheridan, the actress Anne Sheridan, and so in this incredible scene. In order to comfort his best, best friend, Robert Cummings, who's gone off to become a doctor, comes back home and he's going to take care of Ronald Reagan and they climb into bed together and they're holding each other in bed. Because one's going to die, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. So, I mean, uh, that's that's the scene. And that's gay. And they were great at Cummings are, and Reagan. If you're a person in the closet or you're a person just newly discovering that you're gay and that scene turns you on, yeah, then it's a gay scene. Anyway, so that explains that, yeah. By the time Robert Cummings, who I'm doing a book on, by the way, by the day, and we're going to have Rick on in a second. Rick is okay. So the chat is is has gone off on a fabulous tangent that Bob Cummings is really a porn name. (laughs) You gotta you gotta see it his way. I mean, the way it's spelled: C U M M I N G S. Yeah, yeah, very pornish. I bet you Rick knows the story behind that. I bet you. Shout out to PJ in the chat room for that. Yeah. His more. name actually wasn't Robert Cummings. That wasn't his original name. Let's ask Rick. We will. We'll ask Rick when he's on okay. about what his original name was. But the whole point with Robert Cummings was, first of all, Robert Cummings, his pilot license, his FAA pilot license is number one. That's huh? how long he's been flying. He was taught to fly wow. by Wright Brothers. Really? Wow. Absolutely. Is he still he, alive, Bob Cummings? No, he died no. years ago. You know, if my name was Bob Cummings, you know what my middle name would be? What? what? Are you? <laughs> no, loves. Uh, see, are you would be much more outgoing. Nobody yeah, it's a little realize, longer. It's a little longer. Nobody realizes Nancy's very, very quiet humor. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's why I can't get laughter. It's right. It's not that quiet, actually, Bill. <laughs> yeah. I do continually look stuff up and look up jokes that you know, seemed to be funny at the time. But I, I went off on a tangent today trying to figure out something that's driven me crazy my whole life is why when there are uh, magazines or um, VCR tapes in the window of, say, a tape store or a magazine store, and they're in the window and they fade. And they're, they're that awful, in really hot climates, <clears throat> the, the stuff behind the window of certain stores is just that awful, almost, the only colors left are blue and purple. Because sunlight leaches out the colors. Yeah, yeah. but, see, the, yeah, the but, how it, but why certain colors? Why, you know, in other words, the ones that are closer to, to ultraviolet stay. Closer well, actually, to get- the, the he- normally the heavier colors are the ones that kind of lose their, their color uh, first. The lighter colors stay a little bit longer. So that's why you'll see that blend where everything kind of looks light and faded. 
Yeah, like yellow goes first. In other words, the farther you are from, uh, if you look at the rainbow, and here then the colors are red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. See, and and as you get to violet, then you get to ultraviolet. So it's ultraviolet, violet, indigo, blue. And that's and 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 it seems like they must they hold up longer because they are closer to that spectrum, and it's the ones at the other end, reds, orange, yellows. They go first is all something to do. And now, in other words, those colors hold the bleach. The way the bleach works in 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 um, oh a wonderful word, and I should have put it down. Color degradation, I believe it's called something like that. It's got a it's, it's a, a pretty pretty that's long. One of Richard Hoagland's favorite words, by the way, degradation. Really. Degradation, yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. Wait you a know, minute. it is... Photo, photo degradation, it's called. And, and, and Okay, I know, I know, I know. Okay, we're going to be having to stop all this fun. We and, are t- and have different- <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. We are going to take our break, and we will be back. Oh, we'll be back after these messages with our guests, Rick Lertzman, Richard Lertzman, and Joe Martin. So stay with us for our guests and... Nancy Reagan. Back after this. Four thousand seven hundred and thirty-four UFO sightings in two thousand seven. by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens and hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from the public knowledge for years and only one trusted source on information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. The UFOstore.com Expand your personal library with fast shipping and Instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 
954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com The George Rodriguez Show. Who? I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes, that George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fellow. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez show is much more than adequate.
Hi, everybody, and we are back. We will bring Rick on in a second, but Joel's with us, and uh, thank you for joining us, Joel, tonight. We appreciate sure. it. And we My are going to be talking about... Um, now, I have heard from Rick that the tape is not working, so what Rick is going to do is he's going to send me a copy of the cassette. We'll copy it here. We'll play it, but uh, at least we can talk about this. Um so, we so, so Nancy is Reagan is not going to join us tonight, but uh, I'll be Nancy Reagan instead, or Rick will be talking about Nancy Reagan. The 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 um, story was this, and and this is one of the reasons why Rick and Joel are going to be here. Um, we were talking. Rick was doing research on the actor's life, Robert Cummings. Robert Cummings was, and I'm just going to set this up. Robert Cummings was perhaps one of the biggest A-list actors in the 1930s and 40s. He was the go-to actor for Alfred Hitchcock. He could do everything from comedy all the way to serious drama to romance to a whole bunch of things. I mean, he was in Dial M for Murder. He was in Saboteur. He was, um, he was in a number of really important things. And he also did comedy. When television came along, he migrated to television. It was my godfather that got him the job in television. He was working for McCadden Productions in a television show called Love That Bob, the Bob Cummings show. And then... Um, that's what he was doing. And then later on, uh, he was in a show called My Living Doll with Julie Newmar, a very famous show. Bob Cummings was very early. He was in a whole bunch of stuff in TV. He was in Twilight Zones. He, just like, uh, he was friends with Rod Serling. He was a patient of Max Jacobson, Dr. Feelgood. And his life uh, just took a precipitous fall because he was so addicted to methamphetamines. And in fact, in, um, because he and Ronald Reagan were in a very f- famous movie together, a very well-known movie called King's Road uh, with Ann Sheridan. And I think Charles Lawton was in that movie as well. Not Charles Lawton. Charles Coburn was in that movie as well. And uh, it, it, it's a movie that made a big, a big impression because in the movie... Bob Cummings, Ronald Reagan, who's supposed to, who's playing a paralyzed character who was in a, 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 um, a buck wagon accident, you know, an old wagon wheel accident as a Western. How paralyzed was Reagan? So paralyzed that from the waist down, he couldn't get out so of bed. So that's why the other guy could climb into bed with him. That's why Bob Cummings climbs into bed. Exactly. So that scene becomes very famous. And then it's Bob Cummings who winds up getting the girl in Sheridan, not Ronald Reagan, because he can't get out of bed. He's paralyzed. So this is the movie King's Road. So now Bob Cummings is a very, very old man. He's on his like fourth wife. She was a fan from a Piggly Wiggly in Tennessee. Milton Berle set the whole thing up. And finally for his birthday, uh, this woman sets him up for a birthday party at the Sportsman's Lodge. Anybody from L.A. knows the Sportsman's Lodge on Ventura Boulevard, this really weird little place with, with like this, these little streams that run through it and swans in the streams. It's very cute. Very famous landmark. So it's at the Sportsman's Lodge. So, Ronald, so President Ronald Reagan shows up to wish Bob Cummings a happy birthday. He's an old man at this point. 
and and it was so pathetic because at this big party for Cummings, this this like piggly wiggly bride sets him up with Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, it's one of these big, you know, this is how far he's fallen. And uh, and, and, and our our, our uh, link letter uh, is at this party, and he walks ahead. in, and he see he his wife and him have not eaten all day, and they see Kentucky Fried Chicken and coleslaw, and they go. And, and, and here's Lucille Ball is there, and the A-list of Hollywood, Jimmy Stewart is there. Everybody's there to salute Bob Cummings. And he's humiliated because this woman has no sense of what Hollywood is, and she had begged him to to have this party you know, because she wanted to meet Lucille Ball and all the people that Bob Cummings met, and it was it was a huge embarrassment at the end of his life. He had just done the uh, 35th anniversary of Disneyland on ABC, and here he is. He's, he's actually his yeah, Parkinson's. He, he was supposed to have been a health nut also. Yeah, he, he, he had, his father was a doctor from Joplin, Missouri, and his father was uh, one of the first proponents of natural foods. So Bob had learned at an early age from his father, who was this really pioneering physician in, in Joplin, Missouri, how to, live on, how to live with supplements and health foods. So he brought that to him when he went to Hollywood back in the, in the 30s. And here he is living on health foods, and he believes in this, and he, kept, he believed it kept him young. And he wrote a book uh, uh, that sold millions of copies called How to Stay Young and Vital. Wow. And it was read by everybody in the 60s, and everybody looked at Bob Cummings as this health fanatic. Um, Rocky Kalish, this great the comedy writer who created Gilligan's Island and Family Affair and My Three Sons, told me a story that he went to his house one time and they were having this very formal dinner and it, he lived on, a, a, on Laurel Way, which is right by uh, where Lucille Ball lived and Jack Denny. And they're at this very formal dining room and in front of their plate, they brought these pills. They're all supplements. And he goes, this is the, this is the main course. And, and you know, Rocky and, and, and uh, Bob Finkel, who was the producer, looked at each other and go, you got to be kidding. And Cummings, you know, always believed in, in, in all these health foods, but they didn't know that behind this, he had ex- he had experimented with Max Jacobson, and Max Jacobson told him that his supplement, which he said it included monkey sheep sperm and monkey gonads and electric eel and uh, it had human placenta and lightning and, bugs and, <laughs> and every, everything in this. And it, but the, you know, he left out that it also had steroids. And methamphetamine. So Cummings, oh. Cummings is in New York, and he's shooting this uh, Twelve Angry Men. And uh, Reginald Rose uh, tells him, uh, and through their agent, to uh, visit this doctor. And he's a brilliant man, and his 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 potion will just rejuvenate you. So Cummings goes in and gets an injection from Max Jacobson. And he feels energetic. He feels he feels young again. If you know he. He's fifty something years old at the time, but you know here he is. He he does love that Bob, and he's, he he has this very youthful appearance, and he, so he gets this injection, and he becomes addicted. I mean, he starts. He he's taught how to take the vials home and inject himself, and he starts injecting himself with this, and he becomes very dependent on the methamphetamine. Now, and now he had to be aware from from others and people he knew that. There had to be methamphetamine in there because he, you know, he wasn't—he was a, a pretty sharp guy, and he, he knew pretty much 
you know, what was going on. But here was this doctor that was a, the physician to the jet set. You know, Tennessee Williams is a patient. Truman Capote is a patient. Um, every everybody in, in in Hollywood and Broadway are coming to this brilliant mastermind, Max Jacobson. Um, you know, when when uh, Anthony Quinn's on Broadway, he, you know, he he needs you know he. He goes to see Max Jacobson. He becomes addicted. Uh, Alan J. Lerner, one of the great playwrights from My Fair Lady and Camelot, um, becomes so addicted that he's at his office day and night. And, you know... Um, uh, Hedy, Lamar. Wrote, uh, Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. So Bill, Bill wrote a story. Uh, Bill wrote a book uh, uh, he wrote with Dwayne Hickman called Forever Doby. And I got a chance... So as I'm writing a book about Bob Cummings, I'm interviewing Dwayne Hickman. And Dwayne, you know, I said, Dwayne's telling me about a story when he flew back with Bob Cummings to promote Love That Bob. He said Bob took him to this office, and in this doctor's office, here is Truman Capote on one side, Tennessee Williams, Anthony Quinn, Alan J. And he's looking at this office, and every celebrity's in there, and out comes this doctor, and he has this, Lab coat splattered with blood. His fingernails are dirty. I mean, it's an absolute. He's an absolute wreck. He looks like a one of those mad doctors out of a science movie in the fifties. And he walks in, and and he goes. He calls him Chuck because his character is Chuck. He goes, Chuck, get one of these shots. This 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 will make you feel so great. It's got monkey sh- sperm and sheep and monkey gonads and sheep sperm. And and he looks at him, and he has he has sounds legit. Head. He has it. He has a, uh, a hypodermic needle. And so, you know, you know, Dwayne said, no, I said, Dwayne, who is that doctor? He goes, Dr. Max Jacobson. Hmm. And all of a sudden it, it registers that Max Jacobson is the doctor to uh, Kennedy. He's the one who injected him, you know, during the, the debates. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he just, you know, Max Jacobson put a spell on all these brilliant minds Winston Churchill was a patient. Harry Truman was a patient. You know, all the way up to Richard Nixon who was a patient. Um, I mean, it was just it just so a, a, all of a our hero, story. all of our heroes, our elders, were high when when they were doing this and and, Pretty and much, Nancy, prohibiting yeah. prohibiting pot this whole time. Give me a break. On well, this. Kennedy, yeah, that's what I mean. So here's Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. So here's Kennedy. One of the major side effects of methamphetamines is um, bipolar behavior. It's hypergrandiosity, which is like king of the world, and massive depression. But when you're in a hypergrandiose state, you have no concept of reality. You can, it's like being Donald Trump. You can do anything. And so, and so here's Kennedy at the Carlisle Hotel, so Rick can tell the story about... <clears throat> Bobby Kennedy throws Max Jacobson, who's Dr. Feelgood, by the way. That's the title of the book. Folks should go download the book. Download the book from Kendall. So um, folks are so, – so Bobby Kennedy steals one of the vials from Jack Kennedy's stash of vials, has it analyzed by the FBI. Now, remember, at this point, Max Jacobson had been turned in Vienna – by the by Soviet military intelligence back in the 1930s. At the White House was the White House photographer Mark Shaw, who was OSS during World War II. Now he's a non-official cover officer for the CIA. 
and he's a Jacobson patient, and he's having an affair with Max Jacobson's wife. So this is the Kennedy White House circa 1962. But how do we get to Nancy Reagan? We're getting to her. Mm -hmm. So Max Jacobson is kind of a Soviet operative in the White House injecting the president with high doses of methamphetamines. He's also injecting the president's photographer, um, Mark Shaw, who's CIA, with massive doses of methamphetamine while Mark Shaw is having an affair with his wife, with Jacobson's, uh, well, with Max Jacobson's wife. So, I mean, that's the situation. Bob Cummings is in this mix. And by the time he is an old man, he is still addicted or he's been through an insane asylum or link letter uh, pulls him out. And, um, but the, the point of all this is that Rick, is that Rick, in order to talk about Bob Cummings, interviewed Nancy Reagan. And as Nancy Reagan on tape, now the tape's not working now, unfortunately, my fault, my fault, but, but, but we'll get it to play. Well, can Rick describe it in intimate That's detail? the point. So, Rick, tell us what's on the tape, and then, Joel, you can react to what Nancy Reagan says about Joan Quigley. Well, when, oh, I, sure. went back, when I went back to, to look at Bob Cummings, I was fascinated that both Ronald Reagan and, and Bob Cummings were, were followers of, of all the great astrologers. Uh, it was actually Ronald Reagan who, when he went to Hollywood, got to know Carol Ryder. And Carol Ryder was the uh, astrologer to the stars. And when they, he got to, when, when he, they were at Warner Brothers together, he introduced Bob Cummings to Carol Ryder. And Reagan said, you know, he swore that everything Carol Ryder told him, he followed. He followed every chart, he followed, he followed every action that Carol Ryder told him, and he felt that his career went on track because of Carol Ryder. So now Bob Cummings goes to Carol Ryder, and you know, here's a guy whose family were, was a family of science. You know, his father was a, was a physician, and Cummings, everything that Carol Ryder tells Cummings, works out, and Cummings becomes this major star. He he, he does the Hitchcock film Saboteur because Carol Ryder told him, uh, you know, this is what you should do. This is how you get into the film, and so he follows Carol Ryder, and when. Reagan, Reagan continues on with Carol Ryder, and he uh, 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 introduced Nancy, first Jane Wyman, who did not believe in it, um, and she poo-pooed it. But Nancy Reagan, you know, when he, when he meets her, she follows Carol Ryder. So I wanted to talk to Carol Ryder and find out about, you know, the Reagans. And eventually they also went to another astrologer named Sidney Omar. And Sidney right. Omar was... He was your Sydney friend, Omar was sort of like... He was sort of like, if you ever saw the, the film The Producers, he was somewhere like Carmen Ghia, you know, walk this way. He was a, a real character, and I actually went to his house, and, you know, he, he would tell me stories. And then I actually I interviewed Joan Quigley, uh, who became the astrologer to the Reagans, because she was also the astrologer to Bob Cummings. So uh, I got a chance to talk to all three, and, you know, eventually... When I was doing research for Bob Cummings, I wanted to talk to Nancy Reagan and really see her thoughts on astrology. So, you know, to, to get to Nancy Reagan is like you jump through a, a, a ton of hoops. And I started at the Reagan Library, and I worked with a, uh, a gentleman named uh, Bill Powell. And Bill Powell was the assistant to Nancy Reagan. And, and eventually, you know, I said questions. And so finally I got a... a, 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 a in a, a short window with Nancy Reagan, which kind of expanded a, li a little longer, and she just was so 
angry when I would ask her questions about Carol Ryder and and how her husband. And I didn't get into it. I knew that Joan, when I had talked to Joan Quigley, she told me, you know, how she charted out the, the Carter debate. You know what to do. She charted. She she told him what Air Force One would fly. She told him uh, everything in in the Reagan White House, according to Joan Quigley, was, you know, uh, was uh, decided by her. She know she her she said she was very scientific in her charts, and so she she uh, you know so when I asked Nancy Reagan, she just was very angry and you know you know very. this was about 2006. Right. That's yeah. That's what I thought it was. 2006. Did you set set on paper or tell her handlers whatever what you wanted to talk about? Yeah, we I had to submit certain questions, and I didn't really want to put astrology in there because I knew that you know that might blow the interview. So you know, a a lot of it was on Bob Cummings, and um, you know, and I did. I, I kind of went on the fringe of methamphetamine because, you know, I just didn't, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think that was appropriate. But Well, did Nancy have I, anything to do with uh, Dr. Max? No, I don't no. think so. She, she was, she was uh, totally uh, focused on the career uh, of Ronald Reagan, and she was a, a big pusher with um, General Electric and pushing his speeches throughout the country. So she kind of pushed him into that. He was doing, um, his brother got him into the General Electric Theater, and then he did a lot of promotional speeches through the late 50s and early 60s for General Electric. So she was kind of pushing him into that because, you know, she saw the writing on the wall that his career was basically dead. I mean, I think the last thing he did was Death Valley Days. Right. So um, mm-hmm. uh, she, she, kind of, she kind of saw the writing on the wall, so she was pushing him toward politics she was friends with the bloomingdales with betsy bloomingdale and so she she was lining up people that they could fund them and push them into politics but then she'd be friends with or she'd be frenemies you know eventually enemies with truman capote then if she she if she and betsy were friends because it was truman capote who uh, exposed the marriage you know the the flaws in the marriage to the whole truman capote used to have the ear of the Hoity-toities, uh, the tippy-top of society. You know, I don't you know, know what I, they're I, called. I had an interesting talk with, with Joanne Carson, who Kuma Capote actually lived with in, in her last, right. last year. Wow. And yeah. uh, jo- Joanne loved Truman, but um, I, I was asking more about Truman's addiction to methamphetamine and mm-hmm. Max Jacobson. Well, is it true? Um, I wrote in my novel. Uh, it was a factoid when I wrote my novel. A factoid among, you know, like I used to read about celebrity people in magazines, let's say. Nowadays, you can read about them online. And it was said that Joanne Carson had her wedding ring melted down into the, into a teardrop shape and wore it on a, on a chain. Had, did you, had you ever seen that? No, but she had this beautiful home. She, she had lived in New York and then she moved back to Los Angeles and I saw her in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And she was real, very, very bright. Very bright, very mm-hmm. sharp, and uh, Capote lived with her, I think, for this last few years. He was, uh, I guess, a wreck. And part of oh, it was, he was a, a horrible. 
Yeah, he really was. He lived he lived on Long Island, so we'd we'd see him from time to time. Oh, wow. He, you could see him slobbering on the corner, forgive my language. Oh wow. It was it was it was very very sad. He she was very good to him. This is the second Mrs. Carson. Yeah, well and, he uh, was shunned uh, society, you know, he was at the height of his uh power when he gave mm-hmm. a thing called a thing called the black and white ball. And if you Google black and white ball on any Google you will see beautiful pictures of the beautiful people like Babe Bailey. Uh, he mm-hmm. gave, she gave it, uh, he gave it with her and, and they gave this beautiful ball in which everybody was asked to dress in black or white. And that was the little gimmick. And all the best people came to it and things. But, and he fell from that pinnacle of society to the, what you slobbering on the corner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it happens to it. He really was. You know, and he was a talented writer. Very talented. That will never go away. If you want to have some fun, no. go, go read his early fiction. Uh, his first book of short stories, whose name escapes me, but it's wonderful. Yeah, go read To Kill a Mockingbird. You'll see a lot of his phraseology in there. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, that's sort of the era I was brought up on, you know, as I became a writer, my own self. So I'm, I'm just aware of him as a writer. So, I mean, Joe, you knew, uh, Joe, you knew Sidney Omar too, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I knew we had do most of them, if not in person, on the phone at least, and occasionally running into them. And then I'd be with somebody who would introduce me to somebody, and he would turn out to be somebody, you know, that kind of business. So, uh, Joel, did you ever hear of uh, this person? No. Oh, yes. You know. And all of a sudden, you were meeting people. Um, that's that's how I knew uh, Johnny Carson's second wife. May she rest in peace. She was a very smart lady. She she actually was. Uh, she really was. And uh, it turns out that somebody she adored who was an artist was my art teacher. So, you know, it was that kind of thing. I was like a, a fly, a speck on a wall. I was like I was an insect on a wall. And I just happened to be in the right room sometime. Right. And, uh, but they were your... interesting people, but they were very flawed people. They yeah, really but who, were. But, Joe, who was your art teacher? What was his name? Jan de Ruth. Jan, J-A-N, last name, D-E. Oh. R-U-T as in Thomas H. He oh. was a Czechoslovakian refugee after World War II. He became a brilliant, brilliant artist, and I lost touch with him, and I really hadn't seen him for some time. But then one night I'm watching the Johnny Carson show when Johnny Carson was on for an hour and a half every night, if you can imagine, and uh, from 11.30 to 1 Eastern time. And there's Jan sitting there. He, Johnny Carson introduces him. I almost fell off the chest. Oh, my God, this mm-hmm. is the man who taught me art, drama, makeup, you name it. Anything in the theater arts, uh, dramatic arts, he taught me. So uh, he, he mentioned that he was going to be doing a one-man show in Manhattan, and that's where I had been going to school public school, so I said, whoops, i got to go there. Mm. So I went to Lexington Avenue to the art gallery, and I walked in, and I didn't even know if he would recognize me. Mm. I walked in, and he looked at me, and he was very distinguished-looking, very artistic man, bald, but with lots of hair in the back, you know, <laughs> very artistic look. And he said, Joel? Mm. I said, yes. I said, you remember me, Jan? Of course I remember you. Huh. Your uncle got me to be your teacher, right? I said, yes. Uh-huh. My uncle owned theaters. You know, I'm the same kind of family that Bill is from. And uh, the thing, a theatrical family. So he, anyway, make a long story short, he said, how is your uncle? Mm-hmm. I said, well, he passed on. He said, good, good. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah, my, my uncle, I loved him dearly, but he was very thrifty. Which theater? Okay, now this would interest Rick because your uncle was one of the owners of Yiddish mm-hmm. Theater in Manhattan. That's right. Yeah. The, the, uh, he was one of the owners of the uh, Second Avenue Theater, which was somewhat legendary in its day. Yes. The, uh, the Anderson Theater and the Gaiety Theater. Wow. And they were all in lower Manhattan, just above Greenwich Village, around Second Avenue in that vicinity, and, and the lower-numbered streets for anybody who knows New York City. And the Yiddish Theater was a very prominent and important place. It sent a tremendous number of artists on to work in legitimate theater uptown, and he owned theaters up there, too, what although I don't know which ones. What were the dates? Hmm? What were the dates, the years that were the heydays of this theater? Oh, well, the heydays of the theater actually were in the early 1900s. I mean, the theater, Yiddish theater did well until mm, the World War II era, post-World War II, when floods of refugees came here. And there were ethnic theaters all over New York. You had Chinese theater, Italian, Jewish, or Yiddish, same thing. Uh, then it, it started to go on the wane as these people became older and, you know, that generation passed And assimilated, on. and assimilated, basically. And assimilated, yeah, very much. And their children and grandchildren spoke virtually no Yiddish at all. I mean, and if you didn't speak Yiddish, the theater accommodated it as best as it could by mixing whatever foreign language was involved with English. Mm-hmm. So you'd hear English and Yiddish at the same time. <laughs> and so it, Fanny Br- and Fanny Bryce came out of Yiddish theater. Sure. Oh, sure. Fanny Bryce. Herschel Bernardi came out of it. I think Abe Vigoda uh, came out of it. Uh, or several of the actors I've seen on television, character actors, uh, uh, wonderful character actors. I, I can see the face in front of me, and I can't remember his name. Don Heaton. Five Fivish That's who I'm thinking of. You're reading my mind. Fivish Finkel worked in that theater. Uh, Stel Getty worked in the theater. Uh, Menasha Skolnick and Molly Pecan. Uh, name people would not know would be Irving Jacobson, but Irving Jacobson, God bless him, was wonderful to me as a little boy. And when he uh, went on to the legitimate theater uptown, he played uh, with Richard Kiley in uh, Man of La Mancha and played every performance. So these these were very, very disciplined, trained actors, and uh, they don't get the credit they deserve. They really don't. Well, just, yes, I and so my theory is there should be a book. Rick. Yeah, there should be a book. There should be some kind of visual. See, Angel, for example, uh, who doesn't like, he doesn't think he likes Broadway Rick and Joel. Stuff. Well, but Angel in particular is sort of a consumer, a young consumer of multimedia. And this this material, once it's laid out properly and you get to see the riches of it, you see, um, then you begin, like, and and this is, again, when, when pot is legal. Let me just tell any old folks who are listening, when pot is legal, get, find your children, let them show you how to use it. And then put, <laughs> put some of these old movies, you know, put an old thing on, and suddenly you're looking at it with different eyes. And that is such yes. a gift. That's such a gift. And it's sort of like you Absolutely. can't be there, but you can be stoned <laughs> and almost feel hey. like you're there. Um, you really can. They were they were tremendous people. I I would not have my career without them. And all I had to do because there was no school when you're seven years old. Heck, as I send you to school, I watched them. I just had to watch the way they worked. They yeah. were so highly disciplined and and so focused on what they were doing. They were to me absolutely amazing. You don't see that kind of acting or performing or theater craft usually uh, 
this uh, era. How close? Uh, how close was Yiddish theater to burlesque? Because the theaters were very close. Second um, Avenue downtown. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Physically, there's a there's a there's a great documentary called the Tomaszewskis. That was it. Who were the oh, yeah. legendary family? And it was on PBS. And sure. their grandson is Michael Tilson Thomas, the great conductor, who um, talked about how the discipline these performers were, and you know, and and the theater that they brought. And it was kind of a, a lower, you know, echelon, non, you know, it reached kind of a more of a working class audience. Uh, yes. Jewish theater. It did. That's right. It absolutely did. It did not reach a, a, a moneyed audience, not at all. I come from a very large family, and the relatives who went, in fact, were the, the more middle-class relatives, and we had a tier of family that was very wealthy, and I really don't remember them going, but I remember many of the others going, and you'd look at the audience, and you'd see they were very uh, very middle-class. Um, my uncle's son, my cousin, may he rest in peace, he became a, a, a violinist who worked with a the Fritz Reiner Orchestra, who was a he was a, a, a noted Hungarian director, composer, and conductor, and then he also played violin for Toscanini. So you know, when you were around these people, you just saw a discipline that I, I just don't see now, and I it it really bothers me. I think we would be a lot better off if we had it. And these were artists; they really were. And uh, I I learned so much from them. I you know, but yes, do they need a book? If you do it just as you said, the way you just explained. Yes, very much. If you can make it relevant for the, the, the young people today to understand what we're losing by not learning about them, well, it would I, be I think wonderful. It's, I think it's underway, Joel. I, I, we watched last night the Tony Awards, and I have to say it was very uplifting because this year it seemed like it was the classiest thing in our whole culture. When you talk about diversity, uh, all of the top awards, actress, actor, in a musical or in a series or whatever, the diversity was wonderful to see. It was as multicolored as you could imagine, as you know the world is. But there was so much more talent because of this, because mm. different people are given a chance. My goodness, there was a, um, a young girl who was something brown, I don't know what, not totally white, and she was as good as Bernadette Peters was when Bernadette Peters first opened her mouth and sang. In mm. other words, this is Broadway. There was Broadway royalty. Like Angela Lansbury came on the stage walking on yeah. her own. She's 91, and yes. you have to uh, have seen Manchurian Candidate. You have to see that movie to oh yes, and then and then just see Angela Lansbury. I mean her years on TV and stuff. But I mean that was the tenor. Those people and Barbara Streisand came on the stage, and it was the night after the terrible gay uh, killings in Orlando. In Orlando, and uh, oh yes, it was it was somber but not. But it was so celebratory of of what is really good about this country. And what you can't stomp out, and I really hope the Tony Awards show message lives longer. I think it will, because they they were talking about they were talking about Fiddler on the Roof, for example, the revival, and Fiddler on the Roof probably has its roots in the. It United does. It's Shalom Aleichem. Of course, what's one of the Shalom Aleichem stories? Of course, it's Tevye the Milkman. That's the short story. Sure, that's a perfect story. Yeah, and 
Sure. In those years, there was Yiddish. There was Yiddish radio right through the early sixties. You know, substantial amounts of my Yiddish radio. To, yeah, my grandmother used to listen to uh, to Yiddish radio. She didn't speak English. She spoke Yiddish, no. and she spoke Yiddish. Right. And, yeah, and, mine too. They that's what they, and they would listen to it, right? Right. And then when I took German in school, because you had to take a third language, and mm-hmm. so the German teacher, the German professor, was looking at me at my accent for German. And he just goes, you to Deutsch. Ah. Yeah. Well, they're very close. When I, was in, when I was in Germany, and I cannot speak German, what I did when I got angry, which was quite often, I, uh, just not too many years ago, I would curse with them in Yiddish. <laughs> it worked beautifully. One tried to run me over, another got angry because I was an American. So I would go right back at the other. And they never, never, never argued. So well, they, they, they're quite close. <laughs> when we were filming in Germany for UFO Hunters, all the yes. non-German, the line, the passport line for, for, for German customs was like snaking around the entire, this was in Berlin, snaking around the entire airport. So I'm looking over and I'm seeing that, that you know, the, the German-speaking line, there's nobody there. So I kind of wave. So I kind of wave at the customs person, which, you know, it's Germany, so you want to be careful. And, uh, and so she waves me over. <laughs> she waves me over. And, I mean, it was like on the flight over, on the flight, this is we, well, uh, we flew Lufthansa. So none of the announcements are in English. They're all in German. And this was, uh, right. this was a, a red eye out of Newark. So here I am. You know, I'm just hearing German, you know, trying to catch a few Zs because we were going to shoot uh, when we arrived. Uh, we were going to shoot in the in the easterns in the old eastern sector on the other side of the Brandenburg Gate, oh, yeah. and so and so I'm just hearing this German. So I'm still barely awake when we hit the airport, and we haven't even gotten to baggage claim yet. And I'm going to be checked in by German customs. You just you know stamp your entrance and get your entrance visa. So um, it's amazing. I was speaking to her <laughs> fluent German. And it was you to Deutsch, but I was fleeting to her, and she's giving me this cockeyed look, but she understands me. And so it was really weird. I hadn't spoken German in probably 20 years. You never forget. <laughs> you never forget. <laughs> no. Nah, you know. very funny. No, right. it is. Actually, if you get to know them one-to-one, it's a beautiful country, actually. It really is, notwithstanding some of the problems they're having now. Uh, physically, it's just a lovely, lovely country with tremendous, tremendous background, in, as you know, in art. Well, I wanted to ask, during, during this this delightful period of, um, you know, the turn of last century, and you've got the, mm. the tightness of the various communities, and, you know, we're trying to celebrate that and try to hold on to that. Was there always also hate speech someplace where their father Conklin's, I believe, um, and there was the John Birch Society. I'm not sure whether that was very active. Well, the John Birch Society was 20s, right? Well, what, what, well, yeah, and then it continued. They had a revival again in the 60s, Since early you were, 60s. You guys were actually members of, uh, you know, you were like second-generation ghetto almost in terms yeah. of yeah, maybe second, third generation. But were Forest you aware Hills that, was not a ghetto. Yeah, but were you aware oh. that there were people who didn't like huh. Jews outside oh, of Oh, sure. 
Are you serious? Oh, God. I, I, one of the first things I was taught, to, I don't know about Bill, but I, one of the first things I learned was that you didn't, didn't go out of the neighborhood, you stayed in the neighborhood, because except for Jews and Italians, nobody liked you. You, you stayed away from anybody who wasn't a Jew or an Italian, and you knew what was going to happen. First time I went to Vermont as a little boy, and I love Vermont, and with Uncle Bernie Sanders, you know, being a senator from there, it's a, it's a big difference. But uh, than it was back then, then in the 50s or 60s, they were looking for horns on my head. They lit- literally, the other children looked to see if I had horns, and I, and I didn't understand why. And they said, because you're a Jew. I said, oh. I, I really, I had to ask my mother, what the heck was that about? And she said, you got to watch out for it. And then they used, and without using the word now, they had a, a, a slang word, bilnos, for uh, a non a non-Jew for a Christian. Nancy knows it. Don't worry about it. No, no. Oh, all right. Yeah, so they said, oh, watch out for the goyim. Right. And no, go- I, I, I worry about mishkite. Mishkite is a really... Is a word. <laughs> mishkite. 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 Mishkite is an ugly girl. You know, a girl only... Well, you don't, want to be, you don't want to be that, no. <laughs> and in fact, in, fact in, in one of the great musicals, Cabaret... Um, some of the original lyrics talk about there's a whole song there about a mishkite, a uh, father trying to sa- get his daughter married, but she's mis, 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 mis. I have no idea how to spell it. It can't be period that Max Jacobson really was thriving in because during the Berlin Cafe Society, Max Jacobson was involved with a lot of the people who were there. You know, well, from okay, uh, what side was he on back then? Oh, <laughs> He was on the Jew side. No, I was serious. I mean, what was, side? Was, was he, was, he, he an a, a double agent or something? Was he? No, he was. He, he was a student at the University of Berlin. He studied with some with he, he met Carl Jung and Freud, and uh, he met some of the great minds in, in, in medicine at that time. But he got to he really got to know. He was young, so he went to the Cafe Society. So he became a physician to Billy Wilder, and uh, all these great. Uh, uh, Germans and a lot of German mm-hmm. Jews who moved to emigrated to America, you know, before uh, when, after Hitler. After Hitler, Hitler sometimes some during Hitler they fled. That's true. Well, That's you know true. what's funny, Rick. Both you and Joe, the two of you, know knew Sidney Omar, and the fascinating thing is, I'll ask the both of you: What does an astrologer tell a president to conduct? How to conduct presidential affairs? That, that uh, that's my question to both of you because Joe Joe Quigley was was like for seven years she drove Donald Reagan mad because Donald Reagan would would uh, you know try to set plans but they would not do anything. Donald Reagan would try to set you know what they would do and and he was as chief of staff and right. they would always consult with Joe Quigley and say well. Joan, what does this work? Does this work? And it would drive Donald Reagan insane. You know that he would have they'd have to consult with Joan Quigley before they right. make a decision. That was one of the greatest things she did. Drove him crazy. Uh, he he was he wasn't the most pleasant individual to get along with. I imagine, uh, not from what I've been told. But uh, no, she that's true. That every word of that is true. She um, it, it's not a hard question to answer. Nancy. They are very insecure people most of the people in show business are because what are they selling they're selling themselves and if you can get a little insur- uh, insurance or assurance that you're going to have a job tomorrow you know that person who's going to tell you that is going to be very welcome and 
the idea of astrology and the paranormal, uh, fortune-telling, if you will, psychic readings, whatever, goes way back to the beginning of the movie industry. Rudolf uh, Valentino, was one of his, his first wife was allegedly, alleged, or second wife, allegedly a, uh, a medium. And Mae West, of course, was very, very uh, steeped in the film star into this subject. And uh, this is how they did it, because I had had a conversation once with the late Gene Dixon, and I, it was one of the questions I asked her. I said, how do you sit down with the president of the United States and, and tell him what to do? I mean, you were talking about, you know, this is long after World War II, obviously. Which presidents, did, Gene Dixon, huh? which presidents did Gene Dixon uh, work for? She, oh, she, she did work for FDR, there's no question. She absolutely did work for Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Edgar Casey had worked for President Woodrow Wilson in the World War One era. Era, forgive me. And uh, in the World War Two years, it was Gene Dixon. And FDR's main concern was uh, his health. Of course, he was very, very sick. He should not have been elected to the fourth term in 1944. If you look at pictures of him, then it was just so sad. Didn't but, his doctors tell him not to run? I mean, it absolutely. Number forty four. Eleanor ever consult with a with any of you know um, the people at the time? Curiously, no. They had a, it, this is a very interesting story. It's, it's interesting that you ask that. They had a very well. They had a, you know they had an unusual relationship as it was. But this is pretty much how it worked. He in secret in, in really in, in strictest confidence would would go. He'd go to a, a séance. And if you would be fortunate enough to ask a Mr. President, why would uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you're one of the, the iconic figures in history? Because the answer was, anybody who can help me get through the mess that I'm in, I, I'm putting it in the vernacular, anybody who can help me get through the, the mess of this war that I'm in and having come through the depression, I'll welcome. If the, if the dog will tell me, I'll take his advice. I've got to have some advice. And, you know, it's, it's not a matter of being stupid or ignorant. It's a matter of getting help. If you can help me, if you can make me better, fine. That's why people went to, do, to doctor to feel good. They, they wanted to feel better. I mean, what, what the heck was the reason otherwise? Uh, it wasn't because he was, he was so pretty. Um, and as far as she was concerned, here's how it would work. He would see Gene Dixon from time to time. But if you saw Lincoln's ghost, if you were visiting the White House during the FDR years and you would see a spirit or a ghost, you were better off going to Eleanor Roosevelt to tell her the story. A few people who were very famous, including the Queen of the Netherlands, uh, Wilhelmina, told him, she said, I saw a ghost last night. I saw the ghost of Lincoln. And he said, oh I, oh, I hear that constantly. It's better to talk to Eleanor about that. So it was, it was strange. You would be better off if you had an experience at the White House talking to her. But when it came to taking care of actual business with a psychic or an astrologer, he was the one who did more of it than she did. If she did, she never said a word. The only thing she ever did say was to admit that she actually did uh, at some point see um, uh, the spirit of uh, Lincoln's spirit, and she had heard the story so many times, both of them, that they got tired of saying it. And I don't think it's myth, and I don't think it was just, uh, what's the word, fabrication, frankly, or, or their hallucination, because nobody believed it less than uh, FDR's vice president, 
Harry Truman at the end of uh, FDR's life. And when Harry Truman moved into the White House, he hated the place. He, he, he cursed it up, down, and sideways. He couldn't stand the big old damn empty thing, he said. And he himself said that he had an experience with the ghost of Lincoln. And the same with Eisenhower. Eisenhower actually had that, that stiff who was his press secretary, James Haggerty. Mm-hmm. I, I can only remember him vaguely as a little boy. He was terrifying. It's like Boris Karloff to me. He, he actually went on television, network television at the time, when asked about it and said, yes, the, the general says that he has had an experience mm-hmm. seeing the ghost of, um, of President Lincoln walking down the hall on the second floor in the, the private quarters of the president. And once Eisenhower said it, you weren't going to argue with him, and the same with his press secretary, Haggerty. They just weren't the kind of guys you, you mm. fought with. But Lincoln's ghost, wasn't there mm-hmm. physical trace evidence where, where Lincoln's ghost was standing, there was a problem with the structure in the White House, there was a problem with the engineering that had to be fixed? Which oh, yeah. president was that? Oh, oh the, the president there, uh, that was actually, uh, let me give me a second to go through. I don't have any notes on this. It was it either Ike or it was true? It, it was Eisenhower. It was the Eisenhower administration, yes. It, it was a, 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 a psychic, a very excellent psychic medium whose name I should remember. I've, I've talked to her, a lovely lady, uh, Ann Gemmon. G-E-H-M-A-N, or M-A-N-N. And Ann Gemmon was called by the National Park Service to uh, the uh, then White House before it was repaired for just that reason. She was called to look at it. She was called to look at the house at Gettysburg, too. And when she found structural defects, which she did because she communicated with the spirits, she advised somebody in the National Park Service, a woman who is a, a lovely woman who I spoke to, National Park Service ordered the woman not to say a word. She worked for the National Park Service. Don't you dare say a word about any of this. In that era, that's the way it was. But she, uh, when she retired, then she talked openly about it. That's the one you're thinking of. And she told them to absolutely repair and uh, they they repaired because uh, if you remember there was a time when the presidents weren't even staying in the White House. There was a point at which they were staying in uh, the house that the vice president then used in Washington because there were structural problems with the White House, and also the house at Gettysburg had to have some work done on when Eisenhower bought it and uh, lived there at, uh, right near the Gettysburg Golf Course. So uh, there was there were very few presidents. In fact, I'm not even aware of any frankly, who said, no, this is nonsense. I don't want to hear about this. I, I mean, it, it just didn't happen that way. I don't, I, I don't know where that comes from. I guess it comes from a, you know, the, the Professional Skeptics Association. America <laughs> is a very puritanical society, and in America, the only faith is religious faith. There can be no ghost, no spirit, no this, no that. Rick, did you ever speak to Gene Dixon? I, I did talk to Gene Dixon, and I know that Gene Dixon was a... Uh, was a, was an advisor to the Reagans as well, and I th- yeah. believe Nancy Reagan fired her because in 1976, I think Gene Dixon told the Reagans that Ronald Reagan would be the nominee for president, and when that fell through, they fired Gene Dixon. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it, she had been very accurate with uh, with uh, predicting John Kennedy would be nominated, 
and and that's a fact. It was in Parade Magazine back in the late 50s, maybe 56, and she said the next cycle of presidential elections, you'll see that young senator from Massachusetts uh, be the nominee and then become the president. And then she was referring to John F. Kennedy, of course. And there is a, a, a documentation you can actually see the, the page someplace if you look it up from that Sunday Supplement magazine. It goes in a thousand newspapers. Yeah, um, but no, they, they didn't get along well. That's a fact. Uh, it, it, neither one of them, frankly, were easy to get along with. Gene Dixon was not the easiest person to get along with. And Nancy Reagan really wasn't either. He was. I covered him. I never met her. I, I, you, you gentlemen did. but I. I how, uh, how, did, how did Joan Quigley come into the picture? Again, I'm, I'm, well, I missed that in the I beginning. Think she, I think she took the place of Jean Dixon. Yeah, yeah. She did take the place of Jean Dixon. And there was a circle, you mentioned it before, where all of these A-listers would get together. And, you, you know, you've gone to enough celebrity parties. All of you, and you, you know, this one knows this one, who knows that one. And if you want something, you ask. And he says, sure, here's my unlisted number in Beverly Hills. Give me a call. Or, you know, who, whoever it is that you're speaking to, or he or she who's very well known. And... uh that's how it came about. And one of the people who was a, a seminal figure in getting a lot of A-listers together was, of course, the late Merv Griffin, and uh, the, the uh, then game show host and talk show host, who was the only one who had the, as they say in Yiddish, the chutzpah, mm-hmm. had the, uh, the, the temerity or the, the courage to um, bring on psychics or people who research psychic phenomena on his show he would have an entire two-hour sessions at night on that talk show that he did for well over 20 years. And then, of course, he created Jeopardy and uh, Wheel of Fortune, and, you know, the cash register never stopped running till the day he passed. This is true. Literally well, yeah, he, was, he was also known as, uh, next to Bob Hope, one of the great land developers. As, That's right. Uh, yeah, as uh, celebrities. But, yeah, um, that's right. The Beverly Hilton on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah, they, Arizona. They, yeah, they were good. They were great businessmen. I, I mean, they really seriously were. Uh, most people in, in this industry, the performers, were not terrific at business. Bob Hope was an exception. Dick Clark, probably. Ghana said he was. May he rest in peace. Uh, uh, and, of course, as you, you just mentioned, um, what did, did, what did what, um, how do you know for certain that Dick Clark Well, uh, Nancy something? and I crossed paths with Dick Clark on two separate occasions, Oh, many, many we years did? apart. We did, I forgot. Go ahead. No, but you I'm tell asking, your story. I'm asking Joel. Oh, well, I, yeah, I met him as a teenager on, on American Bandstand. I was, on American Bandstand. Yeah, um, you know, the, the Catholic girls in the uniforms? Oh, yeah, oh I love those. Oh, they were among my, when I was in high school. You can't name, you can't name a boy of any religion or any nationality that true. didn't love that. It's true. We were all wow. suckers. The Jewish boys were all suckers well, actually, for them. Let me tell you. I, I sent Angel a GIF. Don't don't do not put it out there on the on the chat of this person who looks just like I did when I was that age. Yeah. And if you put a uniform on that GIF. You know, Catholic girls. Amazing. Yeah. Um, But in other words, you get out there and you dance your heart out. Yeah. Um, You know, on the dance floor, very tiny little dance floor. But the Catholic, because you went directly after school. You didn't have time to go home and change, you see. I crossed Uh, paths with Dick Dick Clark. Was that in Philadelphia? Yes. Yeah, without Philadelphia. 30th and Market, roughly, yeah. And so my high school was in a suburb of Philly called Moylan, PA, Moylan. And it literally was a castle. 
my high school was in a castle because this was an extremely rich suburb, uh, the main line and that sort of thing. And so, on the main line, oh. Yeah, my Catholic girls' high school was in a basic castle. So it was great upbringing because we really did uh, – well, Princeton was the same way. You would go up marble stairs that were, so, that were worn down in the middle from all the kids raising up and down the stairs. That's class when, you're, when your stairs are solid marble. <laughs> Seriously, that's class. Because that you know you begin to you know you make friends with the environment. So so years later, so, yeah. years later, Rick will appreciate this. I'm working with Dan Paulson. Remember him, Rick? And, yes, I do. And yep. his friend too. And his friend too. Yeah, the good friend, Elmer Gantry. So um, I'm so I'm working with Dan Paulson, and we're trying to set this movie up for Showtime. So we're at the Beverly Hills. We're at the uh, the polo room in the Beverly Hills Hotel. We're having breakfast. That's where we have breakfast. So we're sitting there, and Dick Clark and his little entourage walk in. So Dan oh, Paulson no. had been president of Dick Clark Productions back in the day. They wave to each other. Dan says, "Come on, you got to meet. Come on, got to meet Dick Clark. You got to meet Dick Clark." And so um, I had. We were still wrestling with the Day After Roswell book. And, and I knew there were issues, and this leads me to the story of Corso and Gene Dixon, but this leads me to, to that story. But we were really having a problem. I was uncovering things about Corso that I really didn't like. I didn't like that he was in the Shikassini Knights of Malta. I didn't like that he, was, uh, he testified at the Dornan Committee on MIAs with this guy, um, I forget the guy's name, not Kanyev. Kanyev was the guy who was the field marshal for the Soviet Union who was with the picture with Mickey, and Yasha, Mickey Rooney and Yasha Heifetz and Omar Bradley. But this was, um, forget this guy's name, he was a Polish... He was a Polish um, a fighter pilot, and he announced that he was actually missing child of Tsar Nicholas, who'd been assassinated. Oh. And so it was all over the place. The guy testifying, giving, uh, giving Bob Dornan this information about MIAs from the Vietnam era was really with this guy um, – with this Polish guy, who's a prince who was a, the son of a, the, the deposed czar, the assassinated czar. So we're, so, we're, so we're sitting with Dick Clark. We're having coffee. Not Anastasia. No, no. Anastasia was a was, was woman. Uh, this was, I forget the name of the child, the name of the boy who escaped. Who, they said he escaped. No, it was Anastasia. No, was it wasn't Anastasia. See, anyway. That, that guy was hunting everybody, right? Right. He was kind people. So we're talking. So Dick Clark says, so what are you doing? And he had not taken his meds, so he was very shaky. So I tell him. And so I said, well, my problem with this is, and I relate all the stuff about Corso and my problems with Corso. So he's very amused at this point. You mean this guy really saw a flying saucer? You mean they're really, I mean, he's, he, he's, he's kind of laughing. Then he gets very serious, and, and when he wasn't on his meds, and remember, he'd had strokes, so he, he's slurring his speech, and he speaks in this very low tone, so he leans across the table, we're in a booth, he leans across the table, and he says, this is the secret of selling. Now, Dick Clark, and Rick can tell you stories of some of the great salesmen in Hollywood, Desi Arnaz, Sheldon Leonard, oh, yeah. like that. 
But Dick Clark was also a great salesman. So Dick Clark leans over to, to Dan and me, and he basically says, here's the secret of selling to those guys. Those guys meant the network people, the studio people. He said, take the worst thing about your story or your character or whatever the worst thing is. He said, and put that on the table first. Because once you get by that, you've made the sale. That's interesting. That's, and that was his advice. And, of course, that's huh. exactly what I did, and that's what sold the book. Well, what was the worst huh. thing? What well, the, the worst, worst thing about Corso was that he was in this thing. There were three things that were terrible. The fact that he was hanging around with this person, um, this, like, Polish prince who was the reincarnated son of Tsar Nicholas or something. The fact that he was in this organization that was so – this was so right-wing that they wouldn't let John Wayne in because he'd be too liberal. That's how bad this thing was. That's the Shikassini Knights of it. <laughs> and, and the other thing was that th- this was my problem with, with the book and the story. Why was it that if these were extraterrestrials who could fly all over the universe, all over the galaxy, and land here, I mean the best they got is a lousy integrated circuit? I mean, you know, that's it. That's the technology, an integrated circuit. And Velcro. Right, and Velcro. Well, no, Velcro is something else. Joel can tell you that story about Velcro. Velcro, yes. I have to tell Joel off the air. I have to tell Joel my Velcro Oh, tell him on the air. Tell him on the air? Yeah, Yeah, tell the story. Rick will get a kick out of it. This is as hilarious as you're going to hear, and it's just what you would expect. But I was a reporter when I was 19 years old, right out of high school, uh, for the local daily newspaper, called the Delaware County Daily Times. And they asked me to join the um, Miss America pageant as a contestant and write about it, you know, see how far I could get. Local, you know, get into the local level, which I did. And I went through the whole thing and uh, wrote about it and stuff. And I believe the thing that got me, the I got the lowest scores. <laughs> I, I, won the ba- I, I won the bathing suit contest that was nice but i believe i did i'm not really sure but i but anyway i failed miserably in the actual contest but then i got to report on the miss america pageant when it came out and i got to follow miss pennsylvania and miss colorado around back then uh, so i covered that so i used as a reporter i was successful it's but the as talent a, show oh, it's the velcro oh my god there was a new thing out and i knew, i was pretty clever and so my whole family was and my neighbors and we helped put together uh, this outfit that would allow me to go behind what i was calling a magic tree which was like a tree cardboard tree and i would come out in like all kind of dreary like bum clothes and then go behind the tree and rip off the bum clothes and be a princess on the other side and this would just be done really five minutes it was different um what song were you singing well, i was starting out with the bad clothes was i'm as horny as kansas in august okay and, that, and oh I, yeah but i thought i could sing and i actually couldn't and that so we just kind of throw that aside <laughs> I had no idea. I'd never even heard myself talk. Um, Did you put Vaseline on your teeth? No, no, no. (laughs) What was bad was the Velcro. My mic was still on, and the Velcro wasn't working. I couldn't get it to rip. It was brand new on the market. This is 65, (laughs) I think, or 5 or 6 or something. And I started to curse because it wouldn't come 
come undone. And it, Mike was, it was terrible. And my fiance, who became my husband, was mortified, mortified, mortified. It was horrible. And that was my Velcro story, yeah, because uh, it was brand new, really. And I thought it would be the perfect thing. It did everything was downhill after the and and somebody videotaped this whole thing so at the after party on this little tiny black and white screen in 66 or so you could see a little tiny me sounding uh-huh. like sounding like the girl from um friend 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 dresher oh god <laughs> friend imagine a philly accent so thick that chris matthews would cross his eyes at yeah. it Trying to oh sing. gosh yeah, and I couldn't sing. Who could, I never knew I couldn't sing. I had never heard myself sing. You still I have a Philadelphia was, accent, though. Yeah, and I'm <laughs> See that? I do. You do? do I, I can really? tell. But oh. Your accent. Really? Oh, sure. On the, on, check out on the word on when you say on, O-N. Yeah. It, uh, people from Philadelphia or the Delaware Valley cannot say on. They have to say on. On. I don't know. On. I don't know what on. on. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I don't. Then there's the awning. No, you don't. To keep the water. <laughs> to keep the yeah, water. Yeah, the water. Water. <laughs> water. Yeah. Uh, no, I dated a girl from Philadelphia. <laughs> I, learned the, I learned about accents and dialects. That's all I learned. Uh, that was so Well, that was the end of your show business career, huh? Wait. But wait, didn't don't you, Joel Martin, have a Velcro story also? Oh yeah, this is this is mm-hmm. great. Okay, so Joel, tell the Velcro story. It's it it's it, uh, this is the story of why Velcro was very very good for Yuri Geller. Oh. Velcro be very good to a lot of people. Yes, Velcro was good to a, a, a lot of folks. Um, Bill knows the, the individuals I'm talking about. There's a. a He's passed on, but there was a very, very wealthy Canadian when he passed on who years ago as a young man was hiking in the Swiss Alps, I guess it was, was in the Alps. And he, with another man who was um, from another country in Eastern Europe, they're both hiking. The, the, young, the young man who is Canadian and the older man who's from Eastern Europe, and they get Boris caught in their clothes. And the young man gets so many of them in his clothes that he was, he was just totally infuriated, except that he got a brilliant idea. He said, you know, when you put these two together, he thinks to himself, they stick better than glue. You can't get them apart. I love her money. Mm-hmm. And with that, he invents something that became uh, became rather Velcro. Uh, and he found that he, it, it was the most amazing thing. You, you attach something to this burr, that comes on these these bushes and trees, and it's a, it just is unbelievable. No, it better than any glue. He uh, tries to sell the idea by virtue of making clothing. Sells it to the garment center in New York. It didn't work so well. Then the, the idea didn't go over so well. A, vel, a velcro suit or clothing just isn't uh, isn't the best thing. It, it you couldn't make the clothing out of it. It didn't last. And I'll tell but, you who, okay, so a pause that refreshes. One person, Rick, who tried to create an industry based on Velcro clothing Velcro. Mm-hmm. was Dawn Wells. <laughs> Is that right? Very true, because Dawn Wells' mother had terrible arthritis. 
And so what Dawn told me was that what she was doing was creating a whole industry. So instead of buttoning things, trust me, I have arthritis. Buttoning is very tough. I'm not wearing button-down collar shirts anymore because of that. And so... um, and so, the, uh, 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 so her plan was that if all the connections to her mother's fabrics, clothing, were Velcro, it'd be easy on, easy off. So that's right. what she was working on. I don't know how successful she was. I don't think too well anymore. <laughs> I don't think so, Rick. But no, yeah. apparently not. But uh, but the young Go man then, yeah. The, but the young man Ben, having tried to do exactly what what you just said, Bill, never was successful with it, and and sort of he got discouraged or his mind turned to other projects. He uh, sold his uh, share of the Velcro idea to the older guy, and uh, I think it was from Austria or some some place around there. And he uh, having he sold it and he made a lot of money from the sale of his portion of it. So he never continued. The other guy took the credit for it, the older man whose name I can't remember, took the credit for it. It was named Velcro. He sold it and became a multi-multi-millionaire. The young fella went on with the money that he earned from his portion and became one of the most successful venture capitalists literally in the world and uh, became so wealthy that it it was scary. He, he didn't even know how much money he had. It could have been in the multi-millions or billions, all from this experience with Velcro, which started out with a bunch of bars on a hillside in Switzerland. So that, it, it was thanks to that that I met him and uh, became sort of involved in his part of the psychic uh, phenomena field because when he wasn't doing venture capitalism in secret, he was probably, I think, Bill, you would know he was one of the wealthiest and certainly the, the the greatest financiers of psychic projects in the world i would think well he was a friend of yuri geller yeah oh well he he was more than a friend he he, he gave him a lot of money yeah yeah they were friends oh they were very close friends and he did he supported yuri geller's projects he supported uh his lawsuits he uh I, anything anything that was a major project in the field of the paranormal this man was behind the scenes supporting, but nobody was ever supposed to know because he was part of that uh, Canadian elite, you know, the, the wasps, the, the very wealthy Protestants, and he couldn't allow himself to be degraded or put down, frankly, by those people who would say, you're involved in the occult? Oh! You know, it was, it was a is James Randi Is James Randi still alive? Barely. James Randi, the, the ultimate skeptic, that's why I don't want to say anything, frankly, unkind yeah, about him. He's ex- extraordinarily litigious, so we'll not go into that story. But um, Oh, well, he, he doesn't even have the strength to... I don't even know if he'd have the strength to sue, but he's he's been quite ill, possibly with cancer, but he has been very, very sick. And uh, uh, somebody takes care of him and helps him, and he's lived in Florida for the past number of years. I haven't talked to him in some time, but... He uh, he's not doing well physically. He's been very very sick, and uh, w- with the uh, the passing of Paul Kurtz, who was the uh, the, the big shot with the skeptics organization right. and several of the others, it's there's hardly anybody left. So uh, we we outlive. Well, there's the Michael Shermer, but who we well, talk about in our Ari, book. Ari Geller just on a local one of the one of the podcasters in our general circle of podcaster friends. Uh, Yuri agreed to be on the show, but. I know, I know. 
Anyway, okay, so here's but what I've Yuri, yeah, you. Yuri is a uh, Yuri's a nice man to work with. He's really a very is. lovely man. During the uh, during the uh, 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 during the war, during not Operation Protective Edge, but one of the operations. Um, oh no, was the war against Hezbollah, and um, up in the Golan Heights, oh. and. Um, Yuri Geller was giving dispatches from the front. I mean, Yuri Geller fought in the IDF during the 67 war. So he tells us, and it's, it's funny, I have these two friends. One is my rabbi in L.A. who was a young seminary student. He was in uh, yeshiva. He was studying to be a rabbi in Jerusalem um, during the 67 war in June 67 uh, and uh, 19, uh, uh, 49 years ago. And Yuri Geller was in the IDF, and so they were right. both at the same place at the same time, and Yuri Geller tells the story of they are right at the green line, and they're kind of, you know, looking for positions, and suddenly he sees this Jordanian soldier come across the green line, and the soldier doesn't see him, and he says, I fired first, and he kind of not feels guilty but it's kind of remorseful to this day. So in the war against Hezbollah, he's up in the Golan Heights, and there's a group of Israeli citizens, of Israeli civilians, who were basically doing care packages for soldiers and for refugees, and because there were people in that whole uh, Bekaa Valley region that were kind of caught in a crossfire. So that's what he did, but he was giving us these dispatches from the front to me, to Jack Sarfati in San Francisco, and uh, a few other people. But, okay, so here's the, real quick, here's the Corso Gene Dixon story. So Corso is now in Army R&D. It is 1962. He's looking at retiring from the Army. Uh, they've asked Corso to be the uh, Army liaison. He, they wanted to work for the CIA, his bitter enemy. So the CIA asks Corso, will you be our military liaison in Vietnam? This is 62. So Corso is saying, why are you talking to me about Vietnam? In, 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 actually, it's 63. And Kennedy is still alive. So he says, why are you talking to me about Vietnam? It's very pointed because by this time in 63, JFK is, pulled, is pulling our advisors out. The Ziem okay. regime has collapsed. There are uh, drug dealing all, all over the place. So the CIA says to Corso, we want you to um, be our liaison with the army in Vietnam. And Corso was like shocked. He's saying, why would you want me to be liaison for the army for a war we're going to lose? That was the mm -hmm. end of his career with the CIA. And I so, bet. He, he tells this story. Gene Dixon, it is it is the end of 62, early 63, Gene Dixon, they're friends. I kind of think they might have had a relationship, but I don't want to go down that road. Anyway, they were very close. So Gene Dixon goes to court. Of course, so in Dixon? Gene Dixon. Right, that's who well, you're talking about. Yeah. So she goes to Corso. She says, uh, I've been asked by the CIA to work for them. Which is oh. fascinating because, this, you know, when you talk about psychic spying, this is 263, yeah. and here's the CIA asking Gene Dixon to go spy for them. So, and then Corsa reveals that she was working for military, in, to Army military intelligence, G2. So for all of her um, independence, 
she was working for the army. She was working for military intelligence. And so Corso tells her flat out, don't work for the CIA. They're not friends of ours. They are enemies of ours. And so I thought that was a really weird story. And so Mm -hmm. it's now 1997, the day after Roswell has come out. Um, all I remember is that we were living in Venice and I get this call from Corso. Gene Dixon's died. And oh. so, so he's saying that she promised me her memoir after her death. Oh. He says, what should I do? So I say to Phil, what well, was it in writing? He says, no, it was just like we're friends. That's what I mean. And she gave me her books. And I said, and the family, the Dixon family, wants all of her notes back. And I said, well, Phil, unless you have this thing in writing, you really have no, I mean, if you physically possess her notes, then they're yours. Because she gave them to you while she was still alive. You have them. This is not a probate issue. It's not a, this is, you have them. If she gives you something while you, she's still alive, it's yours. I said, the intellectual property is not yours, but the physical property is yours, which you didn't understand or want to understand. And right. then um, he eventually gave them back to the family. But there was this moment in time when he was really tossed about, should we take the uh, Gene Dixon's notes to Simon and Schuster, and get them published. And I wanted, and I knew SNS wouldn't touch the them. Notes? What? Did you ever see them? No. He called me from Florida, and we were living in Venice, and and I knew that SNS wouldn't touch him. I mean, their lawyers wouldn't go near it, and I knew their lawyers very well because of the whole Strom Thurmond flap over the day after Roswell. So um, I just knew it wouldn't happen. But that's my Corso Gene Dixon story. Uh, wouldn't if it was something that came just from his head, from from the memory of being friendly with her? Couldn't he have written it then about Gene Dixon? He could have written it, but there was a real problem at the time. We had just so this is like the day after Corso. Now we just signed a book at SNS called "The Day After Dallas," and it was oh. Corso was working for. I mean, when you think about the LBJ piece. He was working for Uncle Dick, Richard Russell, Senator Richard Russell from Georgia. Yeah. Um, on, um, he'd been asked to investigate the Warren Commission by Richard Russell, by Senator Russell. So that was one of the issues about what, what Corso was doing toward the end of his life. Did uh, Russell suspect something? Oh, um, in... Um, Russell and his buddy, Jerry Ford, Representative Gerald Ford, did not subscribe to the single bullet theory, the magic bullet theory. They said didn't happen, couldn't happen. Of course, Rick can tell you – I'm glad Rick is here because he can tell you flat out. He spoke to a member of Jackie Kennedy's Secret Service detail, Paul Landis. Rick, you should tell Joel this. This is really a piece of good information. Yeah, well, Paul Landis was actually, you know, in Dallas, and he he had uh, he was one he, him and uh, I forgot his other bodyguard, Clint, Clint. Richardson. Clint Richardson were were both uh, on, on the car, <clears throat> and in fact, Paul was the one who who held Kennedy's head 
and they took him into the hospital. And hmm. Paul and Clint Richardson, you know, knew the trajectory of bullets, and they, they were the ones before the Warren Commission who testified, and they're the ones who came up and what became the grassy knolls, what Paul and, and Clint Richardson both saw, the, the you know, where, where it was coming from. So, and and uh, they were really blocked all the way through, uh, Paul and, and, and Clint Richardson. Well, Paul Landis told us, he said that he was, he was like... This is not Paul Landis, the director. No, this is Paul Landis, the Secret Service agent. Okay. The, uh, Paul, Paul was actually so distraught after all this that he left the Secret Service... And he became a partner with Mark Shaw, who was the White House photographer. Who and was he worked with Mark Shaw for the next five years. Yeah, and he was huh. an unofficial cover officer. And in fact, it was Paul Landers who was Jacobs and Dr. Feelgood, because Kennedy kept saying the shots made him feel good. But, yeah. But the... <laughs> but, but the um, so, so Paul Landers said that um, he's walking behind the limousine. He was walking. And he's walking behind the uh, the presidential limousine, <clears throat> and he says he heard this crack, but he said I heard it over my right shoulder. That would have been the the book depository. And so he's looking around, and all the Secret Service agents put their hands to their guns, and they're looking at the crowd to see where the shot came from. Then Landis says the next shot he heard, and when you realize he's a Secret Service agent, this mm-hmm. is his job. It's like a pilot seeing a UFO. You don't confuse these things. So, no. so, so he said the next shot came from in front of him as they're looking at the underpass under Dealey Plaza or, or right. Dealey Plaza. So he hears the shot. He sees the back of Kennedy's head blow off. He leaps on the, on the limo because he's actually protecting Jackie. But he's throwing his body over Kennedy to just hold his head in his hands. And oh, he said he could see the bridge over the um, decline as they're going under the grassy knoll. And he says he sees a bunch of people running across the bridge from the grassy knoll. And that's how the grassy knoll story gets, uh, gets started. So here's an eyewitness, a live eyewitness who's Secret Service, who said the next shot came from the front of Kennedy and that's the shot that blew the back of his head off. So it's an exit wound, not an entrance wound. Not an entrance wound. And, yeah. then, and, and also, Paul Landis was and, and we asked him straight up, is Paul Landis had an affair with Jackie Kennedy. He was, he was assigned to Jackie Kennedy throughout, you know, Kennedy's years. Yeah. And uh, Paul Landis uh, was very, you know, no Secret Service agent ever got as close to the Kennedys as Clint Richardson and, and Paul Landis. I mean, they were part of the family. They, they, uh, and uh, uh, I was doing a book signing, and Paul Landis came to the book signing for Dr. Feelgood, and my sister, who has a rather big mouth, looked at Paul Landis because I told her the story, and she said, did you really sleep with Jackie Kennedy? Mm-hmm. Huh? And he looked around, he had the sheepish grin, and you just, you know, you knew then that, that it was true. You could see, you know, wow. the look in his right. eye. No, no, I, I <coughs> excuse me, I don't uh, question it. I had become very good friends. <coughs> the stories, excuse me, all kinds of match up. Um, my wife and I had become very good friends with somebody who was a very hot, while he's alive, I won't give his name, once he's passed on, that's another story. 
But uh, we became very good friends with somebody who was high up in the Lyndon Johnson administration. And we became friendly enough that he was on my show quite often and, you know, we'd get something to eat and whatever. And then we would drive him home because this individual lived in the lower part of Manhattan and we were quite a ways from it. So we offered one night to drive him back to where he lived in Manhattan. So we are talking in the car and we're chatting and, you know, stuck in New York traffic, what else is new? And, uh, we're having a merry time, you know, merry old time talking, just as, as we're talking now. And he's answering, and I'm questioning, and vice versa, and everything's fine. Then I made the supreme mistake of saying, do you, do you know something about the, the, the Kennedy assassination? You, you must. I, I never really believed it was one guy who did it, and I never believed in, in the way the Warren Commission said it. With that, and I swear to God in my life, he got so quiet, you thought that uh, somebody had turned off the radio somewhere. He was sitting us in the back seat of our car. He would not answer. He looked out the window because I looked back to see if he was still there. He would not answer me. He never spoke to me again. He would never agree to come on the show again. And we never again had any communication. And the stories are all very much like that. If you made the mistake of bringing up a subject that you weren't supposed to or embarrassed somebody who knew too much, that was it. Finished. Well, so, in, in the in the Oval Office, so um, Dick Russell, Richard Russell, uh, and Corso was working for Russell investigating the Warren Commission. So mm. Russell is in his office in the Senate building and the Capitol building. And he gets a phone, and he does not subscribe to the magic bullet theory. He refuses to subscribe. He said, he said, he said no, a no bullet makes a U-turn in midair. Right. Right. Right? He said, it doesn't happen. So no. um, he gets a call from the president, gets a call from Lyndon Johnson, oh, who, who says to, to, uh, to Russell. Now, the reason Corso said he knew this was that when the president called Dick Russell, played by Franklin Jella, uh, Dick Russell has him pick up the extension phone in his office. So Corso was on the line. when, oh. when But at the same time that Corso was on the line, LBJ would, um, has, he's taping his phone calls from the Oval Office. So we have LBJ on tape saying this. And and Corso, so it was just like you said, Joel, when two stories match up, you know, you got something. So, yes. so um, Corso told us the story when he first talked about investing in the Warren Commission. So Dick Russell, so so LBJ calls up uh, Senator Russell and says, "I hear that you will not subscribe to the um, uh, a single shooter theory um, for the Warren Commission is is promulgating to." Uh, really lay the blame on Lee Harvey Oswald as the as the lone gunman. So Dick Russell says, "Mr. President, I am not the only one who does not subscribe to this. It's 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 also Representative Ford. Neither of us are going to go along with this." So Johnson says to Dick Russell, um, and, and you realize how close they are because it's Dick Russell who mentored LBJ when he first came to Congress. Yeah. So LBJ says to him, Uncle Dick. Um, you, 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 you have to subscribe to this. And Russell says, why? It's not true. You know it's not true. LBJ says, I know it's not true. Now, here's the president mm -hmm. saying, I know it's not true. He says, but 
if there's another gunman, then it's a conspiracy. If it's conspiracy, we're going to blame it on the Soviets. If we blame it on the Soviets, they're going to drive me into war. Would you lose millions and millions of American lives for the death of one person who's never coming back? And Dick oh, Russell God. says to LBJ, you've made your point, Mr. President. I'll convince Jerry Ford. Shortly thereafter, Jerry Ford then changes the exit wound in the back of President Kennedy's head on the official autopsy report. He yeah. changes it to an entrance wound lower down in the back. In other words, to comport with the trajectory from uh, um, around uh, from a shot fired from the depository. I'll be darned. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that all comports. They, they, they come to get, those stories all come together when you speak to these people individually. And as you just said, when they all match that way, you but have to told, know something. Who told you? Didn't you hear that LBJ, huh? it, somebody pointed a finger and said it was him all the way? Oh, the yeah. Point? So in another book I did called The Squad. Oh, it was Mike? It was, it was Mr. Mike. Um, Mike Milan, not his real name was um, <clears throat> working for a squad. We have to leave right it's very soon. Mike Milan was working for, I mean, he's a guy you really have to meet. No, no, you don't want to. He was working for, he was working for uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover had, from the late 1940s, right through, for 30 years, actually for 25 years, he had an assassination squad. Hoover was friends with Frank Costello, and he was protecting a lot of mob guys. I mean, Hoover was one of the people negotiating this thing called Operation Underworld. I could be on all night now, which I don't want to be. But he was negotiating Operation Underworld for a, 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 a Dewey. This was a, a, and, a, and Lucky Luciano bringing Luciano down from Greenhaven down to Ossining, where Rick and I are going to wind up. And... Um, and um, to, to broker this thing called uh, uh, Operation Underworld to uh, get the uh, Italian-run union run by Frank Costello and Joe Sox-Lanza into uh, the OSS to patrol the harbors for Italian spies. That was Mike Milan. Anyway, Mike Milan tells the story that one of the places he was asked to go right after the Kennedy assassination was to Dallas to look around to, to, to mop up witnesses that – he, he was supposed to knock off. So he comes back, and so Hoover meets him at D.C. National, now Ronald Reagan Airport, but D.C. National, and he basically takes him to a you know, private room and says, um, says literally, LBJ, we walk away. Now, that would be uh, another conspiracy theory told by a guy talking about this, but, but. In the Lyndon Johnson tapes that Lady Bird Johnson released in 1997, there is yes. the record of a conversation between LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover on the day after the uh, Air Force One arrives back in D.C. from uh, Dallas. Mm. And J. Edgar Hoover says to Lyndon Johnson, Mr. President, you know that there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds. Now, here's right. where, here's where, and there were more than two, um, but here's where three stories come together. The, mm. L, the Lyndon B. Johnson tapes, in which that's actually recorded for history. Mike Milan's statement to me that, LB, that, that Hoover said to him, LBJ, we walk away. And then, and then um, uh, 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 the third thing was that um, 
there were all these stories about Lee Harvey Oswald, about the uh, Corso telling me that he went to the U.S. passport office where there was no cover-up in the past because they had the records. And he said that in the passport office, he found two completely different descriptions of Lee Harvey Oswald. One is this very short guy um, who needed a passport to get to Russia, a military passport. And the other was uh, this strapping six-foot guy who was at the Mexican embassy, who was at um, the, uh, the Soviet embassy in Mexico City. So three stories all triangulate on the fact that there was more than one Lee Harvey Oswald. And, and so that was fascinating. Yet no one, not David Bellin, who's the apologist-in-chief for the Warren Commission, not Michael Bechelos, the official MSNBC presidential historian, and not Vincent Pugliosi, who wrote, you know, was very good true crime author, not as good as I am, but a true crime author. And, 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 and three of them, don't even mention the fact that Jagger Hoover says to Lyndon Johnson there were multiple Lee Harvey Oswalds. In other words, there was a conspiracy. Anyway, it's... Oh, it's, absolutely. Of course there was a conspiracy. Okay, uh, so I, no let me make a couple of announcements. Let me make a, one we have to go. Uh, Joe, and I, um, uh, Joe and I have our manuscript for the Edison book that's in at Skyhorse. Rick and I are going to be doing books at Skyhorse. So what are you going to do Rick about this be, tape? What? For, what are you going to do about this tape for listeners? Oh, Rick is going to send right. Rick, you're going to send me the tape. We'll find I'm a way to send you a cassette so you can hear it next week, and you can hear the whole uh, Nancy Reagan interview. But it's about 25 minutes or 30 minutes. Yeah, That's, we might actually do our show about that next week. Yeah, we might. We might. And and, and so if you're around, Rick, maybe you can come back and talk. Joe, you can talk. Okay, so um, everybody. Mm-hmm. Thank you to my writing partners, Rick Lertzman. Thank you, Joe Morton. Um, lots of good things coming. Um, Rick and I are going to be uh, starting our own, uh, another radio program about prestige television and, and, and cinema, old-timey, old-timey, old-timey. And, of course, Joe Martin will be one of our very first guests. But, um, and this will be coming up probably in the fall or maybe even sooner. So we are your co-hosts, Bill and Nancy Burns. Bill and Nancy Burns, we are thanking our guests, Rick Lertzman, Joe Martin, my two best friends. We are going to um, Wait a be back next week with our guest. We Thank don't have you. a guest. We don't yet. Yes, no, we do not. I'm working on that. We're all, Thank uh, you. Yes. We'll track somebody down, I promise you. Yeah. Chris, your head. <laughs> You'll we have good guests lined up in the future. In the future, we have Richard Ford coming on, and we also have not John, Richard Ford. Richard, Richard not Smith. Richard Smith. Richard Smith. About, talking about, about John, John Ford. Uh, talking John about Ford. John Ford. And, and I'm you, working on Klaus Donna, who okay, should be back. Donna. So, yep. I'll yes. have to do some research. I'm working on John Alexander. John we're trying to find. Gonna, uh, we're, we're trying, we're trying to, to find a, um, a time for John so Alexander, who wrote something about Orlando. We're going to talk about Actually, that. Actually, maybe I'll bring John Liebert on for that. I think Angel has somebody lined up. Or Chris, or someone for Wednesday, for Skywatchers. I do. I got somebody. Who Wednesday do we got, Chris? For, well, I got Steve Hudgens. We got some good. Steve yep. Hudgens, yay! Yes. Yep. And he would have came on Future Theater. I tried to get him on first, but he does something Mondays where he rides with the cops or something it's in the stuff town, yeah. so he's busy. Hudgens, so he couldn't he do it. Cop. So it's a- oh, Steve cool. Hudgens was a cop. Cool. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. He certainly sounds and looks like one. Steve Hudgens was partners with uh, Ken Sherry down in Texas. Wow. Okay. Yeah, for the, for the um, Stephenville Lights. Okay, everybody, it is midnight from the banks of Primrose Creek, beautiful downtown 
Soberry Village. We are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Ta-da. Good night. Oh, back Good next night. week. Good Thanks night. for our guests, Rick Lesford and Joe Wharton. Thank you, everybody. See you next week on Future Theater on PSN Radio and the Dark Matter Digital Network. Night, everybody.